In this episode, I will be reading Chapter 7. Put your mind to rest. Take a deep breath through your nose. Hold it. Relax every, everything in your body while exhaling slowly. Another deep breath through the nose. Hold it. Release over every bone in your body. Feel yourself sinking into the bed and listen to the story as it unfolds. July 4, the same hospital tent in Washington. In the month that followed, Sarah and Nubin made two trips a week into the heart of Washington to fetch food. Each time, they brought back enough to keep the sick men in good supply. There would be no raised butter or salt pork for Dr. Hammond's patients. Once every week, she went back to the camp of the second Michigan to bring written reports from Dr. Hammond. Back at Camp Winfield Scott, she'd stayed at the night in a tent, which she now had to herself, and she relished in the privacy. Back at the hospital, she roomed with five other male nurses, although She'd managed to get around that, too, by offering to take night duty. That way, she got to sleep during the day, alone, in the quarters for male nurses. In the month that followed, she wrote dozens of letters home for the sick men. She swept the floor of the hospital tent and helped cook. Dr. Hammond had a special cook come in, a Negro woman from Washington, whom everyone called simply Auntie Narcissa. One day, a ragged little Negro girl came into the tent to say that Auntie couldn't come that day. And so, Dr. Hammond looked around at the nurses on day duty. Can anybody here cook? He asked. Refresh chickens. A soup will do for this evening. Sarah knew she shouldn't, but she did. I know some things from watching my ma, she said, and my sisters. He gestured to the stove. Just throw everything in the pot, he told her. 
The other male nurses in the hospital were all older than Sarah and, with the exception of Carl's, who was the orderly in charge of supplies because his father was a doctor, the others all seemed not quite right to Sarah. One seemed dim-witted, another had more feminine mannerisms than even compared to Betsy. The other three were clumsy, with the patients more often than not hurting them and had become nurses. Sarah learned to escape the possible ties of battle. Every Saturday they cleaned. Under Dr. Hammond's direction, the floor was swept and scrubbed and the bedclothes and men's garments were changed. This was because on Sunday morning the head surgeon came to visit and inspect. He studied patient cards, prescribed drugs, examined and pronounced some ready to be returned to the field. Every patient who was able to get out of the bed and on his feet was made to stand beside his cot, no matter how weak, and salute the head surgeon who came in dress uniform with a gleaming sword and attendants. Sarah thought how stupid it was because they never saw this head surgeon other than Sunday mornings and during the week Dr. Hammond did all the work and she strongly suspected paid for some of the food she and Nubin sometimes had to buy when donations weren't sufficient. Twice in the month she was there, a supply of wine, pickles, canned sardines and cake came delivered in a wagon. The crates were tagged with the name of Mrs. Rose Greenhow. Why is this woman sending us food? Dr. Hammond was angry. He'd summoned Sarah and Nubin to him, and they stood looking down at the crates. She stopped us once in the street, sir, Sarah offered. She's the one who sent that bottle of wine the first day I went out. Did she identify herself? Yes, sir. I told you not to take anything from anybody not on the list. His scowl near brought her to tears, but tears were one thing that would betray her. Sarah had always known that, so she kept a stoic face. You didn't say not to accept contributions, sir. She sent her compliments that day. She seemed to admire you. He kicked one of the crates gently with his foot. She's 
an unsavory character. He said, "Don't accept any more food from her." Sir, Sarah was confused. She didn't think Doctor Hammond was a snob. Unsavory. He scowled again. Do you understand the king's English? I want nothing to do with this woman or her offerings. Enough said. Yes, sir, Sarah said. Do we send these goods back then? No, we keep them. But after this, we send them back. That night, Sarah had some of the cake Mrs. Greenhow had sent. And thought it the best she had ever tasted. Why did Doctor Hammond take exception to Mrs. Greenhow? She decided it was a romance gone sour, and though thought no more about it. Sarah liked Doctor Hammond, though the other nurses grumbled about him. They thought him daft because he insisted all their drinking water first be boiled, and because the first week he made them all take a dose of the bitters every day. This was an ounce of whiskey with two grains of quinine, necessary to ward off typhoid or malaria. He said, and he stood over them while they drank it. The first time Sarah took it, she had to run out of the tent to throw up. He came out into the bright sunshine to stand beside her with a glass of water. I'd forgotten that some of you younger soldiers have never had whiskey. He said. I have, Sarah lied. My daddy has his own still. Her father did not, of course, but it seemed the right thing to say. Me and my brother Ben have tasted it since we were knee babies. It's just that my stomach's empty. Is all. He gave her a queer look. You're not coming down with typhoid, are you? No, sir. Best let me examine you. No, sir. I'm right well. Here, give me that. I'll take it right now again and show you how well I am. She took the glass of bitters and drank it down lickety split, just to show him she could. Somehow, she kept it down, though the whiskey burned her throat and made her shudder. Next, he made them all take the vaccination against smallpox. Sarah became feverish; her limbs ached for two days afterward, and her neck became stiff. In turn. Such effects overtook all the male nurses, 
and one afternoon, seeing Dr. Hammond examine private cows, she knew that she could not permit herself to such, or her secret would be found out. So she denied feeling poorly when Dr. Hammond asked, If it's all the same to you, sir, I'd like to take the this week's report back to the second Michigan. He signed it and she left the hospital. Back at Camp Winfield Scott, she sought the privacy of her tent, where she was able to languish in her misery, unbothered for two days until she felt better. She had to get back and help plan tomorrow. They were putting on a musical for the soldiers in Dr. Hammond's tent. A special guest was coming, a man called the Comte de Paris, the son of the pretender to the crown of France. He was coming with a sketch artist from Harper's. Sarah had decided that her contribution to the music would be a rendering of scene from Uncle Tom's cabin in which she had played Topsy. She knew the lines well. She had only to drape some homespun over herself and as she'd done back home, she would put burnt cork over her face and hands. Three of the male nurses, including cows, sang. Another, named Bailey Sneed, gave a reading for David Copperfield. Then, Sarah did her heart-rendering monologue. From Uncle Tom's cabin, the applause was loud and sustained. The entertainment was a success. Afterward, when she was serving cake and coffee to the soldiers, the young man, who called himself the Comte de Paris, came up to her. I have never known a Negro, he said. Is your depiction accurate? Sarah looked at the young man, one she considered vapid. On first meeting him, she decided she'd die before she allowed herself to be called a pretender to anything. I only know Nubin, sir, the little boy who helps around here. Otherwise, I only know what I've read. Why don't you ask that young man in the bed near the tent wall? He has relatives he visited before the war in South Carolina. Sarah knew what answer the Comte would get from young Jimmy Grimstead, and it gave her pure delight to send the Comte to him. She watched in the candlelight as the Comte leaned over Grimstead's bed to ask what the slaves were like on his people's plantation. Plantation? The young Grimstead asked, and he propped himself up 
on his elbows. Mr. Comte, my kinfolk don't live on no plantation with the white columns and the magnolias. They're dead farmers, country people, the slave owners, their low country. My kin got nary a slave on their place. They do all their own work. I never met a slave. No siree. Then why are you fighting this war? The Comte asked. Because I hold with human dignity for all, Jimmy said. The Comte seemed disappointed. As he passed by, Sarah, he shrugged then stopped to whisper something to her. You have the gift of mimicry, he said. I've a friend who will soon be in Washington soon. He might like to meet you. At best, Sarah thought he was a fool. July 10 to 15, the same hospital in Washington. In the July heat, Sarah felt an unreality about things, sometimes alone on duty at night with the crickets chirping outside and the sound of a harmonica from a distant camp or the flash of heat, lightning and rumble of thunder over the distant unfinished capital. She could not quite believe she had ever once lived on a farm in Michigan. She could not recall her mother's face. She felt as far removed from her growing up years as if she had died and come back to life again in another time and place. But she knew two things. And both worried her. Her brother-in-law, her sister, Clarice's husband, was with the latest group of men who'd come to join the second Michigan. She'd seen him in Camp Winfield Scott, her last trip there. She knew she was going to have to have the mole on her face removed so he wouldn't recognize her and soon. The other thing that worried her was the rumour they'd soon be going into their first battle. She'd become fond of this hospital. Dr Hammond, the other male nurses, despite their peculiarities. Nubin, with one she made her twice weekly trips for fresh food and especially the men patients for one she'd written letters and talked to in the night when they couldn't sleep. Maybe she should have offered to be a nurse, but no. She'd come to fight and fight she would. The next day, she asked Dr. Hammond if he'd remove the mole from her face he was at the board table in the middle of the tent writing. She brought him a cup of coffee. 
she knew he was working on a list of hospital reforms to be sent to the war department. She hated bothering him, but she couldn't go back to Camp Winfield Scott with the mole on her face. Dr. Hammond? Yes, Private? I was wondering, sir, if you could remove this mole I have on my face. He set down his pen, accepted the cup of coffee she offered, and looked up at her. Looks fine to me, Private Compton. Why do you wish it removed? She was ready with the answer, because some of the men back at camp have taken to calling me Frenchie. Because of the way French women paint moles on their faces to be in fashion. It's embarrassing, sir. He nodded, but his eyes, which were blue and which went a sort of silver when he got thoughtful or angry, seemed like two silvers that had fallen from the sky, the moon to be exact, as he looked at her. You don't have to go into battle if you don't want to, Compton, he said. I'll write a request that you're indispensable to me here. I've some jurisdiction, you know. Sarah looked at the floor. Got nothing to do with going into battle, sir. Does it? No, sir. Why should it? He nodded. All right, I can do it this afternoon. Is there anything you want to tell me, Compton? Tell you, sir, about them all. I've had it since I was born. Not about the mall, Compton. Anything else. You can trust me, I promise. Sarah had no idea what he was talking about. That afternoon, he removed the mall, bandaged her face, and sent her back to the camp with some laudanum. She was the only one of all the nurses going back. I'll miss you, Dr. Hammond said. Godspeed, Private Compton. She had to turn away from him on going for the tears in her eye. Sadly, all good things must come to an end. So, I bid you good night, sleep tight, and don't let the bed bugs bite.